Today we continue a sermon series that we have embarked upon in this season of Easter. It is a series that we are calling Sacred Space. As we concluded our renovation and began to worship in this new space for our congregation, we wondered what there might be to learn about our own faith and our own sending and the objects and the furniture of this new sacred space. And so each week since Easter morning, we have visited a different piece of furniture in this space and asked ourselves, what is its significance? We began with the furniture that all of you are sitting in, the pews, which sometimes put us next to people who we might not otherwise choose to be next to. We then were led by the youth in an exploration of the significance of the chancel that Briggs and Penn were sitting on just moments ago, and soon all of the children of our church will come forward to sit on again and be baptized at Kate Buckley. That's an amen from Mac. Kate Buckley led us in an exploration of our organ and the importance of music in this space, how we are all pipes who are sent out to play that song of God's love. And then just last week, we stopped at the table, the table where God feeds all. Today, appropriately enough, we visit the font the font that we have already stood at as part of this worship, but the font that is indeed not only for our children, but for all of us. And as we have done each week, we turn to the scriptures to understand perhaps how God is using these objects to form and send us. And this day we turn to the conclusion of Matthew's gospel. Verses that are commonly known as the Great Commission, chapter 28, beginning with the 16th verse. Let us listen now for a word from God. Matthew writes, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Friends, this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, send your spirit now that it would rest upon our hearts. Indeed, O God, we pray that through your spirit there might be a bridge from these very old words to our lives today. That somehow through your work, the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and glorifying to you. For you and you alone, O God, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
You know, someone pointed out something to me recently that I had just never really thought about, which is that at some point, each of the gospel writers had to figure out how to end the story. Think about it. Here they are writing the story of a person who they believe to be literally the most important human to ever walk the face of the earth. They're writing about this earth-shattering, history-altering, tectonic moment called resurrection. How do you end a story as epic as that? If you were here on Easter morning, you might remember how Mark chooses to end his telling of the gospel story. Mark ends on a note of fear and uncertainty. Remember the disciples there at the empty tomb on that first Easter morning, they flee, Mark tells us, in terror and amazement. The gospel writer of John, he chooses to end by essentially saying, there's lots of other stories I could have told you, but I'm not going to list them here. Luke ends by saying to be continued, which of course it is in the book of Acts. Luke and Acts are really one book together. Luke tells the story of Jesus' life. Acts tells the story of the early church. Matthew's gospel, though, this passage we have just read, Matthew's gospel chooses to end with a commissioning. Right? Matthew seeks to send, to inspire his audience to go out into the world, completely changed people. Right? There's that commissioning, three parts to it. Go and make disciples of all the nations. They're not going to come to you. You've got to go to them. Baptize the people you find there in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And teach them to obey. Now, here's the thing. When I read that commissioning, I can get behind about two-thirds of it. But it's the middle one, that second one, that I just kind of scratch my head at. Right? Why baptism? Why not something more practical? I mean, if Jesus is really trying to inspire his disciples and to inspire new followers to follow him, why not go out, make disciples of the nations, and build them homes, and then teach them something? Why not do something helpful? Feed them a meal, set up a health clinic, and then help them. Why baptism? I mean, what is it about the font? What is it about the font that is so important that the gospel writer of Matthew is literally willing to hang the entire story on it. There was a pastor who once served a small church in rural northern Minnesota. The practice in this church at every baptism was to invite the members of the child's family to stand with the parents. So the grandparents and the aunts and uncles and the cousins, they'd all stand as the minister held the new child and, and administered the sacrament of baptism. 
One day after church, this pastor remembers he was walking around locking up and he found a a member of his congregation, a woman named Mildred Corey, crying quietly in the empty sanctuary. He approached her and asked her what was wrong and she explained that the baptism in that morning's service had reminded her of her own new grandson's baptism. My daughter Tina, she said, you see, she wants to have her precious new baby boy baptized in our church, but she's nervous to come talk to you because there's no husband. She's 18, confirmed in this church, raised in this church. Baby came, she kept it. Father joined the Air Force, headed out, fled town. Now, at that particular time and in that particular place, such a thing was still rather controversial, and so the session had to have a discussion about it. And they eventually approved it, but they all, they all knew what the problem was going to be. The problem was going to come when that minister had to ask who stands with this child, because there would only be Tina. And Mildred. The day came, fourth Sunday in Advent, place was packed. The elder stood at the right time and announced to the congregation, I present on behalf of the session, Tina, Corey, and her child, Jimmy, for the sacrament of baptism. And there was 18-year-old Tina, stood near the back of the church, head down, shaking a little as she held little Jimmy walking down the center aisle to the chancel. And when the moment came and the pastor turned to Tina and to the congregation and said, who stands with this child? It was as painful as everyone thought it would be. Mildred stood all by herself in this packed sanctuary. And the pastor remembers how he had just turned back to Tina to begin asking her those questions we just asked Brooke and Riddick, the very same questions to the parents. And he says, as I was just about to open my mouth, I caught movement out of the corner of my eye. And I looked over, and there was Angus McDowell. Old Angus McDowell, the most traditional conservative man in that church, in his dark blue leisure suit, slowly rising to his feet. And then Minnie, his wife, slowly rose to her feet. And the pastor turned back again, ready to start asking the questions when more movement, and he began to see a smattering of elders out in the sanctuary, one by one standing. And then that new young couple who had only been attending a few weeks, they stood to their feet, and pretty soon the whole congregation was standing for Tina and for her child. Now hold on to that for a moment. My friend and mentor in ministry, a friend to this church, in fact, Steve Eason, 
whose daughter-in-law happens to be here, daughter-in-law, sister-in-law happens to be here and worship with us today. Steve was once asked to write on this passage from the end of Matthew's gospel. And in true Steve Eason fashion, he was characteristically blunt on the topic of baptism. He said, look, folks, Jesus doesn't send the church out in the world to just perform the ritual of baptism. This world is messed up. And I promise you, Steve says, a little water, that ain't going to fix it. Those words, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, those aren't magic words. They don't change really much at all. He said, no, baptism... Baptism is efficacious only to the degree, only to the degree that it changes lives. Baptism is only efficacious to the degree that it reminds all of us, not just the child at the font, but all of us, that we are each fully immersed in the wholeness of God. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Baptism, you see, is only efficacious to the degree that it reminds us that that none of us are powerless in this broken and messed up world because the Spirit of God, the living God, it dwells within and among and even outside us. Baptism, Steve, almost seemed to be saying, baptism is efficacious only to the degree that it sends us out to stand, to stand with and for someone and something. I love the fact that our new baptismal font is on the ground. Those of you who have worshipped in our church for some time might remember that before the renovation, it was up on the chancel, which made it a little difficult to get to, including for the pastor. I was always paranoid I was going to trip over my robes and fall down the steps while holding a child. But that's not why I love that it's on the ground now. I love that it's on the floor so that all of us, we can approach it. We can walk around it. We can dip our hands into that water and be reminded and feeling it between our fingers of our own baptisms. Right? We can be reminded of the promise that is not only Max, but also ours, that God is with us. God is with us in good, but also in challenging. Right? God is with that mother who is worried on this Mother's Day. God is with that single parent. God is with that couple who desperately wants to hold a child in their arms but struggles to conceive. God is with the broken family, 
God is with the rebelling teenager. God is with the addict who who denies and denies and denies that they have a problem. God is with the middle-aged dad facing cancer. God is with those strung-out teachers who are just limping to the finish line. God is with those who are struggling day in and day out under the weight of grief. Right, Every time we dip our fingers into the water, we're reminded of maybe the most important thing of all. That when our names were called, God was the first to stand. When our names were called, God was the first to stand. Now imagine a group of people, I don't know, call them the church, sent out into the world, commissioned, inspired, sent out into the world to proclaim news as good as that. I mean, what else? What else is there left to say? when the end of the story really turns out to just be the beginning. Amen.